If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me this evening to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21 tonight. Christ's purpose, our purpose. We step back into the Gospel of Mark and follow Jesus as he begins his formal ministry in Galilee, more specifically in the city of Capernaum. Last time we were together, uh, we were thinking through the nature, just following our thoughts on the ministry of John the Baptist. We thought through Christ's preparation for ministry through his baptism and uh, through his temptation. We uh, thought about uh, his commission to his disciples, at least uh, several of them, uh, with our focus being upon uh, two sets of brothers, Simon and Andrew, and uh, James and John. And we left the group last time with James and John having left their father Zebedee with his hired servants as they had been mending their nets and instead followed Christ. And we talked about that nature of following Christ. Well, we pick up this evening right there in our narrative in verse 21 of Mark chapter 1 where uh, we read this. And they went into Capernaum and straightway on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. So the text tells us that after having called his disciples, he goes into Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was a city on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, it becomes a sort of home base. I say a sort of home base. I probably don't even need to make that qualification a sort of home base for Jesus's ministry throughout his years prior to the crucifixion, uh, because... In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible tells us that after Jesus left his home in Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum. Uh, so we acknowledge that for the, mo- for the majority of Jesus' earthly ministry, obviously he spends a good deal of time traveling in uh, various places, but he is based in Capernaum. And we recognize that uh, Peter, uh, Simon, lived in Capernaum. So uh, he went to the seaside and, and, and he, he called them as they were fishing. And this is where he enters into the city of Capernaum proper. We're already in the region, right? But now we enter into the city proper. And much of, we, uh, much of what we read about, uh, specifically in the book of Mark, of Jesus's ministry, will be in and around Capernaum. So Jesus enters into Capernaum and he heads immediately to the synagogue and there he teaches. Uh, the Jewish synagogue was, by this time of Jesus, one of the most important religious institutions in Israel. It is also the institution from which the local church model of Christianity actually has its general root. So we kind of carry with the local church idea a synagogue model as opposed to a temple model uh, where we all come to a local place of worship rather than a single centralized place of worship. At this time, there was a temple. A temple had been rebuilt in Israel, and yet this synagogue model was still in place. It generally came into being, we would believe, it would seem, during the Babylonian exile, when the Jews sought to continue worshiping after the destruction of the temple and while far from the land of Judea, from the, from the city of Jerusalem. So recall, uh, we don't really see synagogues existing in the Old Testament. 
uh, we, we talked through our, our um, intertestamental period idea before. I, I'd like to bubble that up at some point on a Tuesday evening again because it's just a fun series to go through. The, the period of time between Malachi and Matthew. And a lot of things changed between Malachi and Matthew. And one of those things that changed is that we don't see synagogues in Malachi. We don't see this idea as they come back from Babylon. The initial people that came back from Babylon, um, they were in, insistent on rebuilding the temple. But by the time of the New Testament, we recognize that synagogues uh, have cropped up uh, throughout not just the region of, of Judea, not just throughout the region of Galilee, but as we think through uh, the book of Acts, we find that there are synagogues throughout the Roman Empire at this point. Effectively, a centralized place where Jews could go to worship, though they may have been farther from the tabernacle. And that begun probably in Babylon because they were far from the, the temple and, and, and the temple did not exist at the time, but then would continue not just in Babylon because many of the exiles did not come back, but then as they scattered throughout uh, the Roman Empire and, and, and prior to that, the, the Grecian Empire as well. And so the Jews would come to this place, this centralized place of worship, and there they would observe their regular worship with the exception of those three primary feast days where they would all make their trip down to the temple itself in order to, to do their worship there. Especially on Sabbath days and feast days, the, the synagogue would be very busy. And so it became the home to preaching and teaching and worship for the Jewish people. Anywhere where there was a good number of Jews, you would find a synagogue. And anywhere where you saw a synagogue, you'd know that there was a relatively good number of Jews in that area. So Jesus enters in on the Sabbath day directly to the synagogue. And this would be the day similar to our worship on the first day of the week here on Sunday when the Jews would religiously go to the synagogue for teaching. Their day of teaching would have been on their Sabbath day, that being the, the last day of the week, Saturday, as opposed to us worshiping on the first day of the week, Sunday. And so this is exactly what Jesus did. He went into the synagogue and he, being a visiting teacher, a visiting rabbi, taught them. And the text tells us that as Jesus taught, that they were astonished at his doctrine. This is an interesting word here, astonished. The idea is that the teaching of Jesus was noticeable, notable, distinguished, that it stood out from them in contrast to what they had normally received. And Mark is careful to emphasize exactly what it was that caused his teaching to stand out. It was not Jesus' charisma. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 53 implies that Jesus was a man um, in, in whom there was no particular beauty by which he should be desired. So it wasn't necessarily his, his charisma, uh, uh, wasn't his delivery. It was, the text says, his Authority. I've been really sitting on that word a lot, Mark. Uh, maybe you, maybe you, you, you're starting to see why it is. I, I feel like that's a theme in Mark um, because we, we see that word come up quite a bit. Jesus taught with authority. And we know he taught with this authority because he had this authority. It was given to him of the Father. We've seen that already. We saw that last week. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased he spoke with the authority of God because he is the Son of God. You've perhaps experienced this before. Not necessarily, obviously, uh, none of us have sat under the teachings of Jesus, but you have perhaps experienced a, a, a sort of idea before where you might hear two men 
and they teach. Maybe they even teach similar things. And yet one of them speaks as if he's sharing facts, and the other one speaks as if he's relating truth. One of them touches your intellect, the other one touches your spirit. One of them speaks with the native weight of knowledge, the other one speaks with the weight of power. He speaks as one that has authority. Jesus spoke with that power by which the listeners were compelled in their spirits to regard his words, to be convinced of his words. We call this today conviction. The idea that one speaks with authority is conviction. So that when a man speaks, and and it's not explicable as to exactly what it is about the words he's saying. Again, maybe you've heard these words before, but in a particular time, at a particular moment, in a particular context, a man speaks, and as his words go out, they strike the very chords of your heart. And you are convinced of them, and there is a weight to those words, not necessarily because of the words themselves, not because of his charisma, not because he placed every word perfectly, but there is something about his speaking that carries weight, that carries authority, that strikes your heart. That's the idea here. And this is because Jesus spoke in the Spirit. And when the Spirit partners with a man's words, when, a, when the Spirit partners with a man's message, that message will always have power. That's the great desire of every teacher, of every preacher, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time we share the gospel of Jesus Christ, our desire is not that we are the most charismatic. Our desire is not that we are the most convincing. Our desire is that God would take our feeble words and he would pair them with his spirit's power and they would rest upon the hearts of people, God's people for the preacher, unbelievers for the evangelist, and that in doing so, there would be a weight, there would be an authority behind those words that compels men to flee to Christ. And of course, Christ carried those words with him in his own ministry. On earth, you and I will sometimes experience this power. Many of you have experienced that power. When the Spirit of God is evident in your words, driving your message into the hearts of the hearers, because it's not your message, it's His message. Not because you are anything special, not because your words are anything special, but because the Spirit of God has seen fit to use you and to partner with you to give your words His power as they go forth. Thank God for those times. May we seek those times. May we desire those times in our lives where we get to carry forth the message of God with power into the ears of the hearers. Well, Jesus carried this with him all the time. For he was never, as we sometimes are, out of fellowship with God. Jesus was never, as we sometimes do, a man who allowed carnality to override the Spirit's leading in his life. So in that Jesus was always in the Spirit, and in that Jesus was always in fellowship, his words always carried that power. We continue then in verses 23 and 24. The Bible says, And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, saying, Oh, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum still. The same synagogue wherewith he, <coughs> excuse me, he has just taught 
with great authority. He, perhaps he is still teaching with authority. People are marveling when a man stands up and that man yells out. And the Bible says this man has an unclean spirit, a man who is possessed with a demonic spirit. Now, there is not much direct insight in the Bible regarding the workings of the spirit realm. Most of what we know, biblically, we piece together from various accounts throughout the Bible, through uh, the witch at Endor and through uh, Daniel's interactions in, in, in uh, his prayers and, and, and uh, Gabriel and the prince of Persia and these, these little glimmers from uh, Elisha and the chariots of fire that were round about him. Uh, all of those little glimmers of accounts of what might be happening in the spirit realm. Now, as I've warned you many times before, there's an awful lot more out there from Christian authors about the spirit realm than the Bible has to offer. Be very careful with that. We want to be careful because they are getting that information from somewhere. They're either pulling it out of thin air, which generally isn't the case, but possible, or they're pulling it from a source. However, that source is, to whatever degree it goes beyond this book, not this book. And if it's not this book, then the question is, what is that source? And so many Christians are actually relying upon the credibility of men who were saved out of witchcraft, were saved out of Satanism. And while we might say in a natural way that there is an authority, these people were in it, these people were behind enemy lines, they understand what was going on behind enemy lines. I think we need to be very careful with that line of reasoning because the Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies. And if he is the father of lies and if Satan uses and deceives men, Satan needs none of these men. Satan pulls these men deeper into his kingdom as a means by which to enslave them not because he needs them. Now, those men think they're needed. Those men think they're you being used. Those men think that they have power, but they have no power except the power of evil. And so if we take these men who have been behind enemy lines and we give them the credibility to say, aha, since they have been behind those enemy lines, this is how they say that spirit realm works. Well, maybe it is, or maybe Satan decided to simply lie to them too. So that then any of those who come out of that, that, that religious system and then devote themselves to Christ might be foolish enough to say, since I've been behind enemy lines, this is how it works. And we believers can get good and distracted, devoting ourselves to ideas not rooted in any biblical authority, but are actually rooted in demonic authority, satanic authority. By saying that, that these, these teachers of the, the, the vast array of things, naming spirits, naming uh, authorities over various realms, um, uh, uh, prescribing echelons of authority within the demonic realm, am I saying that they are, without question, false? I, I, no, because I don't know. What I'm saying is they don't know either, <laughs> okay? I don't know. You don't know. They don't know. The only thing I know for certain is what I have in this book. 
And I know that because this book has been given by inspiration of God. And what else I know about this book is that it has all things necessary in it for life and for godliness. Are there truths outside of this book? Yes. There'll be an alignment with this book, but there are truths outside of this book. Can we utilize those truths? Yes. Can we know those truths? Yes. Can they be helpful? Yes. But can I stand upon those things and know for certain their veracity? Well, no, not really. So be careful with the spirit realm. Most of what we know thus, we've pieced together from various accounts in the Bible. Evidences we find in the world around us can be helpful to us as well. But what we know is that humans are made up of three parts. There are some who will debate and say two parts, that's fine. Um, But I'm in the camp of three because the Bible tells us that we're made in the image of God. And we find that God is made of three persons, three distinct persons, one singular God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father being the will of the Godhead, the Son being the enactor of the Godhead, the Spirit being the empowerer of the Godhead, creating one single unified God in three persons. So it would not surprise me, it does not surprise me with the idea that man, who's made in God's image, is also three parts. These three parts are the body, the soul, and the spirit. The body being the physical part of us, the part that is biological, the part that interacts with the physical world that is around us, the part that contains those five general senses, sight, smell, touch, hearing, tasting. The soul is the immaterial but biologically connected part. This is where we find our personality, our intellect, our will. These things are connected to our experience, our upbringing, our training, And the spirit being the immaterial and divinely connected part of us. This part of us is eternal, able to function without the body. This is the part of us which is God aware. Uh, This is from whence comes our conscience. Uh, It is through our spirit thus that we are able to commune with God. And as we try to piece together, the Bible doesn't say a whole lot about this either, but it seems as though this is what we find in the scriptures, that there are these three parts Uh, These three parts are given distinct words in the scriptures and they seem to have distinct uh, uh, functions and yet they come together to make a singular person. As we look at how they interact with one another, there's certainly more questions than answers. And the Bible gives us, again, very little true insight into this. But if we filter what we know of these three human attributes through the character of God in whose image we are made, we might at least assume that the spirit is the part of us that empowers or directs our motives and our thinking in the same way the Holy Spirit is the part of the Godhead that empowers or directs the motives. The soul would be the place uh, where we exercise our intellect and our will in the same way that the Father uh, directs the Godhead's intellect and will. And then the body is the place where the intellect and the will, under the influence or power of the spirit, interacts with the physical world through the senses. And this would correspond to the Son of God, who is the part of the Godhead, the the person in the Godhead that physically interacts with the physical world. Now, the scriptures also tell us that other spirits exist beyond just God and beyond just the human spirit. Those spirits are 
alternately called angels, and then we use the word demons. The scriptures typically use the word devils. And the scriptures tell us that these other spirits are able both to influence the spirit of men and even, in certain cases, override the spirit of a man. In the Old Testament, we see this most often with the Holy Spirit of God, where the Bible says that the Spirit of God will come upon a man. And through that influence, men would express great feats of strength, speak messages of God, have wisdom to lead, have wisdom to guide, things of, uh, of that nature. It's not until the New Testament that we see beyond just the Spirit of God interaction between men's spirits and unclean spirits, evil spirits, devils, that could both influence men and in some cases it would appear indwell men. We typically would call this demonic possession. And the characteristics of demonic possession are that a man's impulses, his words, and actions are influenced, if not completely controlled, by that spirit that has possessed or is oppressing them. Throughout the scriptures, these men exhibit strange, sometimes superhuman characteristics, but it seems always to be accompanied by torment. And this is one of those anecdotal things that we can see beyond the scriptures. That when we read instances or accounts, or if you interact with those who you might suspect to or know to be demonically possessed or oppressed, uh, that uh, whatever benefits they may be seeking, whatever interactions they may have, even if that human believes these to be beneficial interactions, it always seems to be accompanied by torment. And in the scriptures, it is often even accompanied by insanity so that they call these men lunatic, out of their mind. Now, there does seem to be quite a distinction between what we might call demonic possession, which is often what we see in the Gospels, and what we would otherwise refer to as demonic oppression. Demonic possession is a state where it would appear men's actions and words can be completely controlled by a foreign spirit. A foreign spirit an unclean spirit has indwelled a man and thus has overridden his own spirit and become the empowerer of that man. If the spirit is utterly overridden by a demonic spirit, that it can control his actions, his thoughts, and his words. Demonic oppression, on the other hand, seems to be different. This is where evil spirits will make suggestions to men who are in a place of spiritual uh, susceptibility or vulnerability. And because they are spiritually or emotionally susceptible or vulnerable, there can be suggestive ideas or thoughts that are placed in them, not overriding them or directly controlling them, but rather manipulating men, manipulating their spirit into making decisions consistent with the will of the demonic spirit in modern psychological terms, that would be through what they call intrusive thoughts. When people talk about intrusive thoughts, it's the idea that it is as if there's a voice in their head telling them to do things, and those things are quite characteristically evil, wicked, violent. That concept of intrusive thoughts is characteristic. Sometimes it happens in dreams. 
Uh, I just talked to someone in the jail the other week that, that had intrusive thoughts through dreams, dreams of just evil compulsions. And this sort of an idea uh, would be consistent with the idea of demonic oppression. Sometimes it can be physical ailments, things which compel men to entertain thoughts and actions which are evidently subversive or destructive to themselves or others. And again, that's what I tend to encounter with men and women in the jail. People who often, because of their extensive drug use, have opened their minds to become heavily suggestible. And it is one of those things that is a commonality among uh, many who have the demonic oppression and possession that they uh, have oftentimes allowed themselves to become uniquely susceptible through things such as drugs and alcohol. And so they struggle to overcome temptations and what would be called today intrusive or self-destructive thoughts. And as I say all of this, I say it again, much of this is speculative there's little in the scriptures about it, but we, we merge what we see in the scriptures with what we see in the world around us to try to come to some general understanding of this world as it exists beyond the realm of our senses. So much of it is speculative, but let's talk about what isn't. What does the Bible truly say about these things first? From this passage among many, the Bible does tell us that it is possible for a man to be possessed by an unclean spirit. And that this spirit can actually override a man's natural functions and so control both his actions and his words. That's possible. Second, we know that the battle that rages in this world is spiritual in nature, not physical in nature. We read about this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, where the Bible says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wicked spirits are active in this world, influencing men, at times perhaps possessing men to do their work. And this is something that is actively happening and has always been and will always happen until our Savior comes. The third thing we know for certain from the scriptures, is that while demons have been given relative freedom in this time to act and interact, just like humans, they have been given, uh, just like humans have been given that relative freedom, angels, demons, these spirits still function under the ultimate authority and sovereignty of God. They will receive, the demonic spirits will receive the judgment that their rejection of God's authority demands. And they cannot override God's power, God's protection, or God's enablement in the life of one who carries God with him. So these are the things that we know. We know that demonic oppression and possession is possible. We know that the true battles, in the, uh, in, in the, that the, the physical things that are happening are undergirded by spiritual battles that are happening around us. And we know that God's sovereignty and authority is greater than that of any demonic spirit. Now, within that third certainty, I have an opinion that I believe we see here in the text. My opinion from the text is that God, who has set the rules by which both material and immaterial things operate, has forbidden demonic beings, fallen angels, spiritual beings, from inhabiting and overriding the spirits of humans. 
And that when a spirit does so, we're not talking about oppression, but possession. When a spirit does so, he does so at great personal cost to himself. And I'll talk about why I believe that in just a moment. Back to the text then. This man has an unclean spirit. And we find here that the unclean spirit through this man uh, says to Jesus in verse 24, Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Notice first that this man says, let us alone. But this is curious because you also, you, you find this idea, let us alone. And for those of you that are, are, are engaging with us on Tuesday evenings where we're digging into uh, Greek a little bit and thus grammar a little bit, you know that us would be a first person plural pronoun. Uh, two people talking here or two people being referenced here. And yet a little farther in the text, the, the spirit says, I know thee who thou art the Holy One of God. That would be a first-person singular pronoun. And so we find here both the first-person singular and the first-person plural pronouns coming out of the same mouth. This is not uncommon among those who are demonically possessed, that they would see themselves and reference themselves as multiple people, as a group, because whether there is one or many spirits in the man, there is at least two spirits. There is the spirit of the man and there is the spirit of the unclean spirit. And in this case, it would appear that they were both speaking in harmony so that they referenced themselves together in their appeal that Jesus would leave them alone, allow them to stay together. And we know that the demon is speaking here because it is the demon that says, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. It is not the man who would know that. It would be the demon who would know that. So that we find that it is the appeal that these two entities could remain attached. But it is the demon here that is making the appeal. In our day today, our medical would call this idea, the idea of two people residing in one body by numerous different potential names, sometimes called schizophrenia, sometimes called bipolarism, sometimes called multiple personality disorder, sometimes called disassociative entity disorder, which by the way, if you uh, keep up with popular culture at all, Disassociative Identity Disorder, or DID, has become a fad among the young generation. TikTok videos are full of people that are claiming to have Disassociative Identity Disorder. And they get onto TikTok and they talk about the names of the entities within their system. And they talk about this system with multiple agents running various aspects of the system that is their life. Now, most of these are just following what is otherwise a social fad, a social contagion of sorts. But these poor children on this social media app are being led to seek after that which is consistent with the symptoms or the expressions of demonic possession in their lives. And I have no doubt, tragically, that many of them are finding what they seek. Be careful, Christian. Be careful with the world around you. 
Now, all of these conditions are deeply overdiagnosed in our society. It cannot be said that there's not times where a wire crossed or uh, a traumatic brain injury or whatever it might be might bring about something of these sorts of uh, diagnoses. And yet, we also find that with the tremendous medical overdiagnosing that our society does, if you read the scriptures and you look at demonic oppression and possession within them, we might believe that these oppressions and possessions in our society are actually hiding in plain sight, hidden behind medical diagnoses. I personally believe it is under the labels of these psychological conditions that we blame on the brain rather than the spirit that these problems truly lie. So the demon then asks, what have we to do with thee? This demon wants nothing to do with Jesus' authority. He acknowledges, I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And once again through this, we see a reflection of Jesus' authority. Jesus has taught with authority, and then this man gets up and he declares, what have we to do with thee? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This demon testifying to the very identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there's one more question that the demon asks before acknowledging Jesus' authority. Notice this. He says, Art thou come to destroy us? Now, this word destroy is commonly translated perish in the New Testament and speaks to a spiritual separation and a torment. Uh, it would make sense here that if, if uh, Jesus were to remove these two spirits, one from another, that that would experience a separation. It is the same idea that we see when the scriptures tell us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that uh, um, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, will not live in that place of spiritual separation. So this demon asks, are you going to spiritually separate us? Are you going to destroy us in this idea? But through this, I think there's something else perhaps going on as well. And this goes back to the theory that I told you a few minutes ago, that I believe that if a, a, a demonic spirit does in fact physically possess a human, that it, can, uh, that, that, that it, it does so at, at potential dramatic consequences. And let me explain to you why I think this. The Bible tells us that there is a contingency of demonic beings who are imprisoned in chains of darkness and reserved unto judgment. We find the statement both in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude, with Jude verse 6 saying, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So Jude speaks of a set of angels which left their habitation, left their first estate, stepped outside of their design, and are now reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day. With 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, specifying that they are being held in hell. They were cast down to hell and delivered into those chains of darkness. Now, the Greek word here for hell is not the word that is normally used for hell, that word being Hades, which is simply the abode of the dead, but rather it's a significantly more specific word for hell, the word being Tartarus. Now, in the Greek world, I should have put up a map, but I didn't. I didn't. My, my apologies for this. You can go look at one if you are, are not familiar with your Greek mythology. In, uh, the, the, um, in Greek mythology, 
So this is relating. Now, Jesus is not validating Greek mythology here. However, he is using the words that were consistent. Well, they're, they're the Greek words for these things, right? He's using the Greek words for these things in order to relate to himself, uh, to, to the listeners, what is happening, or in this case, Peter. So the, the idea within Greek mythology is that there was this place called Hades, and that was the abode of the dead. Uh, in the middle of Hades was a river called the River Styx. And that river Styx was a dividing line between two places. There's a couple of other places as well that we could get into. We won't tonight. But between two primary places. One was the abode of the righteous dead called Elysium. The other was the abode of the unrighteous dead called Tartarus. And so the idea here, as Peter uses this word, is that God cast these angels down into Tartarus the abode of the unrighteous dead, that place Elysium is kind of seen in the Luke, uh, the, the Luke account of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16, as it's called at the, in that place, Abraham's bosom, the abode of the righteous dead. And so we see this idea, a great gulf fixed between Abraham's bosom in Luke 16 and the place that, that Jesus calls hell, and that would be Hades. Peter using the word Tartarus here to speak of at least a subset of the abode of the dead, a place where these angels are chained in darkness reserved unto judgment. So there's a subset of demons that we, we would believe are imprisoned. While another group, another subset of demons is allowed to roam freely. And the question is, what caused that certain group to be put in chains? Now, the Bible says that these angels sinned, Jude telling us they left their first estate. So these demons, they rebelled. Now, yeah, they all rebelled, right? Whether a demon is stuck in chains or not in chains, they all rebelled against God. So it's not just the rebellion against God on the day that they pres presumably followed Lucifer and his rebellion. That, that's not enough. And we know that that's not enough because they're not all chained. So as we consider the Jude verse, we find that God said that there was a subset of angels who kept not their first estate but left their own habitation. They stepped outside of their design and they did something utterly rebellious that warranted them being chained up until the day of judgment. Now, many Bible interpreters will connect this to the time of Genesis 6 when the sons of God married the daughters of men. And they'll this to be demonic beings impregnating human women. That's what was often called the Nephilim theory. Creating these hybrid creatures called the Nephilim. And that would connect to the Greek idea of the Titans and the, um, the, the hybrid gods such as Hercules and Achilles. I spoke of that theory in my Genesis series and explained why doctrinally and biblically I believe it is utterly false. I do not think it holds spiritual merit, and you can go back and listen to that if, uh, if you want to know why. However, I do think we can find a consistent through line with the idea that these demons, when they possess humans, do something which is so far outside of God's design that even after they rebelled against God and they were cast out of heaven, God still set down ground rules for them. And I believe one of the ground rules that God set for them is you don't possess a human. And if you do, there's going to be consequences. 
So they had the freedom to roam the earth, but if they possessed a human, then when they were cast out of that human, their freedom to roam the earth was immediately revoked and they were placed inside those chains. And I draw this from passages in part like the one in Mark where he asks, have you come to destroy us? But I combine this and I particularly see this in Jesus' interaction with the demoniac of Gadara. Now, we'll talk about that account more for what it is in Mark chapter 5. But it's actually the account in Luke 8 that gives us the insight I'm looking for. So I'm going to go to it today. In that passage, we read this. Luke 8, verses 30 to 32. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there and heard of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, and he suffered them. Okay, so here we have Jesus interacting with a group of demons who call themselves legion. And as they interact with Jesus, they specifically request that Jesus would not cast them out and command them to go into the deep, but rather that they would be allowed instead to leave and enter into a group of pigs. And for whatever reason, Jesus allows this. Now, do we have all the insights into what, what it would be that they would enter into this group of pigs and how that would work? We do not. But notice this idea here that they were afraid that Jesus would cast them into the deep. Now, this phrase, the deep, is from a Greek word found in only three places in the Bible. It's found here in Luke 8. It's found in Romans chapter 10, verse 7, as Paul references Deuteronomy chapter 30, where um, he says that Deuteronomy, he quotes from Deuteronomy that God is not uh, high or low, that you don't have to go into hell to find him, that sort of an idea. And he uses that word, the deep. And then finally, it's in the book of the Revelation seven times. So I said three places. Uh, seven times in the book of Revelation, we see this word used. And all of the times it's used in Revelation, it is translated bottomless pit. It is from this bottomless pit that Apollyon ascends. It is from this bottomless pit that those evil locusts with the heads of men and the tails like scorpions come out of to torment men in the last days. So Legion, as he interacts with Jesus on this day, indwelling this demoniac of Gadara, beseeches the Lord, humbles himself, falls on his face and beseeches Jesus that Jesus would not send him into the deep. We'll see in, in our, our, our subsequent passage, he says, before the time. He does not want to be enchained before judgment. And so he is, instead appeals to Jesus to allow him to go into the pigs. Now, what, how does that change the equation? I don't know. Maybe if the pigs die, he's released back without ha having to be cast out and so cast into the deep. I, I don't know how that works. But there's something happening here where this demon is afraid that he's going to be sent somewhere before it is the time to be judged, and he doesn't want to go there. And for whatever reason, Jesus has mercy on him. And while this is not the same word as in 2 Peter, I told you that second word, that second Peter word for, for, for hell there was Tartarus. I believe that the bottomless pit is at, is at the very least a subset of that place. 
so that these demons were concerned that they were going to be cast out of this man and that they were going to then be put in chains in that bottomless pit until the day of judgment. Because they had gone outside of the ground rules that God had put in place for them and indwelled a man and overcome him, overridden him. And I believe that that is in part at least the same concern that we're looking at here in Mark 124. It would seem that they considered what Jesus was doing as a type of interference with their plans, that Jesus' authority would bring about a destruction of sorts. Again, perhaps just the separation of the man from the, the demon, or perhaps the judgment of chains in the bottomless pit for his infraction of indwelling this man to begin with. And this would be my theory here based upon the combination of scriptures one with another. That Jesus had the authority not simply to remove this demon that had this influence over the man, but to cast him into the place where the disobedient spirits are chained in darkness awaiting the judgment of the great day. Just my theory. Not necessarily uh, something that we can, we can know directly from scripture, but I think that there's enough there uh, that, that, that it makes sense to me, at least. And you can do what you will with that. Verses 25 and 26. And Jesus rebuked him, that be this man with his demon, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him, cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. So the Bible says that Jesus, hearing this, rebukes the demon, tells him to hold his peace, and then commands the demon to come out of this man. And the demon, the Bible says, tore the man. We do not know exactly what this means, but that there was likely some sort of convulsing that took place in this man. And then a cry with a loud voice. And then the demon departs and the man is left in his right senses. Now, remember our setting here. Let's get back to where we are. Jesus came into the synagogue to teach on the Sabbath day in Capernaum. He taught with great authority. This man stands up. He calls Jesus the Holy One of God. He asks if Jesus was going to destroy them. Jesus silences the possessing spirit and he casts him out. And then we read the response in verse 27. And they were all amazed insomuch that they questioned among themselves, what thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority command he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. The people are trying to figure out here what just happened. What is this new thing? What is, notice this, what is this new doctrine? Now, the interesting thing is, Jesus did not say anything unusual here. We don't have record of Jesus saying some sort of spiritual words, some sort of ain't angelic tongue that could not be interpreted or, or transcribed by, by the, the languages of men. We don't hear any incantations or invocations of something. We simply see Jesus talk to the man and say, come out of him, and that demon obeys. And so they say, what is this new doctrine? What is this doctrine that comes with such authority? Now, the results of the interaction are predictable, but they're told to us in verse 28. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region round about Galilee. Jesus' fame spread abroad because everyone knew something very interesting was happening in Capernaum around this man, this man Jesus of Nazareth. And this began a whole chain of miracles which Jesus performed. So we read in verses 29 to 34. And forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue... They entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
But Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. And at even, when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased, and them that were possessed with devils, and all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. So Jesus then goes into the house of Simon and Andrew, where Simon's wife's mother was sick. Uh, Do recall that in this time, families would often live together. And so the idea that it was Simon and Andrew's house, but Simon's mother-in-law was there, uh, would not necessarily be outside of some expectation, just depending on circumstances. So Simon's wife's mother, or Simon's mother-in-law, is sick of a fever. Jesus enters into the house. He takes the woman by the hand. He lifts her up and her fever departs from her. Then she gets up and she ministers to them. Most likely that means she performed uh, duties of hospitality. That same day, it would seem, people began bringing those diseased and possessed with devils. See, because in this one day, Jesus has proven that he can cast out devils and he can heal diseases. And so now they're crowding around his house, bringing all of their diseased and and possessed people, and they're gathering at the door of Simon and Andrew's house, and Jesus proceeds to heal the sick and to cast out devils, not allowing those devils to speak because they knew him. Now, this has always been a strange thing, that Jesus regularly forbade the demons from testifying of his identity as the Son of God. There have always been speculations as to why it is, and I uh, will leave this, uh, I'll, I'll mention the speculation or the general speculation. I, I don't know that I've ever come across a, a, a fully satisfactory answer, an answer that as I hear it commends to my spirit, that, that makes complete sense. But generally speaking, most think that it's because the testimony of the demon, regardless of how true that testimony is, is not Useful. It's a functionally bad testimony, right? If you have demons testifying of you, uh, it does not necessarily commend well what you are doing. No man is benefited from having evil people testify of your authority. If an evil man were to come into uh, the, 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 the church or an evil man were to get up on television or get, uh, get onto the, the, the internet and were to uh, just sing the praises of Legacy Baptist Church for our biblical adherence, That would not do Legacy Baptist Church any favors as it relates to finding biblically sound people to join our church. And so that's generally the idea. Even if you're uh, using your authority to cast out that evil, if that evil is testifying well of you, because that evil must testify to the sovereign of all creation, that does not necessarily commend your ministry well. So that's the general uh, theory, and, and, and it's, it's as good as any other I've heard. Um, uh, maybe, maybe not. Um, if you've got a better one, come tell me. So for the follower of Christ, we see the devil's testimony as further evidence of Jesus' identity, of Jesus' authority. But to the skeptic, they might see the devil's testimony as something confusing. A stumbling block for their ability to understand who Jesus actually is and what he came to do. If the demons are testifying of his authority, who is this guy then? They might associate him with darkness rather than light, right? Now, our passage for today closes in verses 35 to 39. And there we read this. So all that happened in one day. And we come to the next day in verse 35. And in the morning, rising up 
a great while before day, he, that would be Jesus, went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. And he said unto them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. So the very day after all of these events, right, Jesus starts his day by preaching in this, on the Sabbath in Capernaum. And then this demon speaks up. Jesus didn't, uh, didn't, didn't go to him. The demon came to Jesus. And the demon speaks up and he silences him and he casts him out. Now the people are quite amazed and they're very interested. Then Jesus goes back to Simon and Andrew's house and it just so happens that Simon's mother-in-law is sick of a fever, so Jesus heals her. So within the course of this time, Jesus didn't go seeking miracles, but he did these miracles and immediately know, notice what happens. Jesus is now swarmed with people wanting to, him to minister to their physical and spiritual needs for possession and illness. But in a sense, we get the picture here when, when, when these disciples say, all men seek for thee. In other words, Capernaum is in an uproar wondering when Jesus is going to come back, when Jesus is going to get up and start doing more. And Jesus says, let's go to some other towns. Why? That I may preach there. Already, Jesus' preaching was kind of being hindered. How can Jesus teach if he's so busy healing all the time? So the Bible says, Jesus went throughout these towns, preaching in their synagogues and casting out devils. And as we close today, I would like for you and I to consider what it is that Jesus demonstrated just here. As I said, he began his day in Capernaum on that first day into the synagogue speaking, healing these people. But when the next day came, what Jesus wanted to do is he wanted to find more people to preach to. The authority over the devils. The authority over the diseases. Served in Jesus' ministry unto a specific end. And that end was that Jesus might reveal the authority by which he ministered so that they would listen to his words, to his preaching. Christian humans are always drawn to the fantastic, aren't we? Our time is no different than any other time. The fantastic would seek to cloud our view of spiritual things. Paul warns that in the last days, perilous times would come where men would have itching ears. Men who are uh, always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We live in a time of, fa of the fantastic as it relates to information. The 24-hour news cycle, the information age, the social media age. There is always a new headline. We call them today clickbait. The most fantastical headlines you would ever read. The most interesting headlines undergirding the most menial, boring, and uninteresting stuff. But it'll get you to click, which it'll get the ads before your eyes, which will get people money. Clickbait, right? The fantastic. Make no mistake. 
God is certainly not beyond the capacity to do the fantastic. We know that. But as we see Jesus' ministry, what was the point of the fantastic? What was the point of the miraculous? Be it the Old Testament prophet with his signs and wonders. Be it the miracles of Jesus or even those of his apostles. What was the objective of the fantastic? It always had a certain end. A certain end was that it would prove to the people that the man that was speaking was worth listening to. That they might submit themselves to the authority of the preaching. Christ came healing diseases and casting out demons. But what did Christ come to do? He came that he might preach to all who would hear. So that even after that first amazing day where Jesus was able to heal and where Jesus was able to cast out demons, when the disciples came and said, Jesus, there's a line at the door. People are getting ready. They are ready for you to come and to continue what you did yesterday. Jesus looked and said, how about we go to another town so that I can preach there also? Not so that I can heal there. He did heal there. Not so that I could cast out demons there. He did cast out demons there. But he said, so that I may preach there also. And this is our call as well, Christian. Our purpose is not to the fantastic. Though certainly the fantastic, again, is within God's power to do if he would see fit. And as a matter of fact, even as we relate this to the carnal fantastic, even if it relates to the idea that we might uh, wrap preaching around some interesting event that would draw people to come and interest them in, in, in what we have to hear, even if we have to make our website look a little prettier than maybe we'd otherwise make it look. Even if I have to uh, take a little bit of extra time to give my, my, my videos a YouTube thumbnail that might look a little more pretty. Okay, fine and well and good and that's all good. But there's a reason, there's a purpose and it's not to look pretty and it's not to appeal except to the extent that it might get more people to hear the word of God. Now, we don't do this pragmatically. Let us do evil that good may come. We do not use the allures of the world to bring people unto Christ because an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit. But our purpose is the same as it has ever been. Our purpose, regardless of whether the fantastic is a part of it or not, our purpose, Christian, is to carry Christ's authority through sound doctrine into the ears of the hearers. We heard this morning from our missionary, it was his... It was his, his, his um, Root or his, his uh, foundational verse in Romans 10, 13. The idea, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he goes on, how shall they hear without a preacher? What is our commission? But to carry Christ's authority, his doctrine into the ears of the hearers, to live out Christ's doctrine in our own obedi- obedience. That's our purpose. Men in particular, do you recall what Titus 2 has to say to you? Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, 
that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. What is it that we carry forth into the world? What is it that we desire to carry out of these doors this evening as we go back into the worlds, the, the various and, and, and individual worlds in which we operate, our worlds of business, our worlds of education, to our families. We're to carry a pattern of good works and doctrine that is rooted in uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity through sound speech, speech that no one can condemn. That even that one who is of the contrary part, even that one who would mock us or belittle us or, 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 or marginalize us for what we believe would at least listen and look and say, you know what? I got nothing on him. I don't like him. I'm not interested in him. I don't like what he has to say. But let's be honest. I have no evil thing to say. Paul calls young men here to prove the authority of their doctrine through clarity and unambiguous virtue in word and in action. Let us be that this evening, Christian. That was Christ's purpose. It's our purpose as well. Peter said to a church that was under great persecution in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, meaning acting toward others in a way that is right before God, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse our good conversation. That word conversation is not just the words we say, but our deportment, the manner in which we live in Christ. Christ's purpose, as he was leaving Capernaum and going into those towns, was this. Let us go into those other towns that I may preach there also, that I may carry the authority of God into those towns that they might hear, that they might believe. As we speak truth, Christian, as we back it up with the manner in which we live our lives, we show Christ to the world. Christ's purpose was to show himself to the world. Our purpose is the same as Christ's, to show him to the world. And they may not like it. We'll continue through Mark and we'll find out there were quite a few people in his day that didn't like it either. But this is why we're here. So as we close, may I encourage you. Keep fulfilling your purpose, Christian. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you've been doing this for a while and you're kind of worn down. Maybe you're a little bit frustrated. Maybe even from the messages over the last couple weeks. Last week we talked about the gospel. This morning we heard about the gospel. And you said, I just, I just how many, uh, don't know what opportunities. I don't even know exactly where to go with it. Well, well you can do this for, to, for today while you, while you keep working for tomorrow. Carry the authority of Christ in your manner of living and in your sound speech and in your virtue into your spheres of influence.
live in a manner that is consistent with the doctrine of Jesus Christ, carry with him, with you, excuse me, his authority. That's what he did. He went from place to place and he took his authority and he went there that he may preach there also. And notice he didn't do it alone. Notice he went into a place to pray, to rejuvenate. It's not uncommon. It's needful. Anyone who ministers of the gospel, and I don't just mean ministers of the gospel, I mean anyone who ministers the gospel needs to have that time in prayer to spiritually recharge, to gear back up. So be in God's word, Christian. Stay strong in prayer, Christian. And then as you get up off of your knees and you close that Bible and you step into your day, live that life of faith. Reflect a consistency of doctrine in word and in deed that reflects a pattern of good works, that reflects doctrine of purity and sincerity, that reflects sound speech that cannot be condemned just like our Savior did unto the glory of our Father who is in heaven. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.